So Revelation chapter 21, and we will continue our study uh, this morning. I'm going to jump right into it. I've got a lot of ground to cover. As you're making your way there, let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever decided you were going to go on a health kick? A health kick. Okay, a few of you. How many of you, let's see the brave ones here, have had your spouse decide for you that you were going to go on a health kick? Right? That's a treat, isn't it? I heard a story uh, recently of a, of a couple. They're getting older. The husband had a health scare. That's never fun. He had a health scare, and this was enough for his wife. She's like, we're getting healthy. She put down the, her foot. She laid down the law, and this, this gal went hardcore. Man, we're talking low-fat, low-carb, essential oils, gym memberships, vitamins, non-GMOs, organic, high-fiber. Like, you know, she's Sergeant Holcomb, man. It's going down. And uh, the husband absolutely hated every minute of it couldn't stand it. He hated the gym. He hated the food. And, and he hated, for crying out loud, the cost. Like, who'd have thought that high fiber food, rabbit food, was going to cost so much, right? And so he just couldn't stand it, but he put up with it. And to his wife's credit, it added 20 years to his life. Well, one day they're headed down to the organic store and they get hit by a truck and they both die and they're going to, to heaven. And uh, as these kind of stories go, they meet St. Peter at the gate. He lets them in, gives them the grand tour. And it's amazing. It's awesome. They're like, this is fantastic. This, it, just, it just gets better and better and better. And so finally, at the end of the tour, the husband's like, all right, I got three questions. <clears throat> where's the gym? Uh, where's the health food? Where's the rabbit food? And how much is all this going to cost? And Peter's like, well, look, there, there's no gym. It's, it's heaven. Like, you'll never go to the gym again in your life. And <clears throat> we don't have rabbit food. You can eat whatever you want, and you can eat as much of it as you want. And it's, it's, it's awesome. There's all the bacon in the world you could ever want to eat, you know, that kind of thing. And he goes, as far as cost, it's free. This is heaven, man. And at this point, the husband turns to his wife, and he's like, you and your brand muffins, I could have been here 20 years ago. <laughs> well, tell you that story by way of introduction, <laughs> because last week... Uh, we, we, we started to see God's new creation in heaven. And, and just seeing this tour of heaven ourselves, how wonderful it is, and, and the new creation that awaits us and all, and we're going to continue in that today, Revelation 21. As we take our own extended tour of heaven, what we're going to see today and focus on is the new Jerusalem that God has prepared for us. It's fantastic. There's a lot to see here. And, um, and let me just say this as we're getting into it. As we're looking at the, at the new Jerusalem, which is the heavenly home that you're going to be dwelling in for the rest of your life, there's amazing stuff to see, and there's a lot of stuff that correlates to our life together here and now. So pay attention to this as we get into it. We pick it up in verse 9 of chapter 21. And John says this, he says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And so this angel, who had the the dubious honor of pouring out the final seventh bowl of wrath on the unrepentant world, That is a vague memory now, Satan and Antichrist and all having been thrown in the lake of fire. And now what is left is 
paradise, heaven, the wonderful splendor of everything. And he now gets the wonderful honor, having had the dubious honor of pouring out the seventh bowl of wrath. He now gets this wonderful honor of giving John the grand tour of heaven, verse 10. And John says, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, the first thing I want you to note here is that the city is identified synonymously with the bride of Christ. Why is that? Why is the city and the bride of Christ, why are synonymous terms used? And here's the short answer. It's because the city isn't primarily a place. This new Jerusalem isn't primarily a place. Listen, it's a people. What makes this new Jerusalem special? What makes the home that Jesus has promised you in heaven so special is that we are going to all be dwelling together there as one. We are going to be unified together. Just as we here in the church, the church is not a building. I mean, God's given us a pretty good objective lesson of that over the next several weeks. The church ain't a building. If it was, we'd be in trouble. The church is not a building. It's the people. It's us being connected together. We together are the bride of Christ. And so, so in, this, in what God is showing us here is that in the new Jerusalem, hey, it's, it's where the people are all together. Yeah, it's a city. Yeah, it's a physical place. But it's inextricably linked to the fact that it's us together that make it a city. And, and so that's what makes this new Jerusalem so special that we're going to be dwelling together as one. And intimacy is the key to understanding this. It, it, the house is just a place without the presence of people, but you add people to the mix, that's what makes the house a home. Here's the point of application for us. Since this will be our future reality then it needs to inform our present reality, okay? That this, us being all together, is what makes the city of, the new city of Jerusalem, the, the wonderful par- place of paradise that it is, making us all together the bride of Christ there. Well, hey, we are the bride of Christ here, and so that, that, that it should be informing us that, hey, we, we need to focus on this intimacy, Next spring at the, the Bible College, I'm going to be teaching church planting. This fall, I teach homiletics. Next, next spring, they're going to uh, let me teach church planting, which I'm passionate about, and I'm super excited about it. And I've been putting together material for that. And one of the things that we're going to be looking at in church planting is the, the needfulness of having these healthy pillars within the church congregation. And it's been a great preparation because I'm about to begin when we finish Revelation and uh, I'm going to uh, be uh, going to, to Ireland on a missions trip and, and, uh, and Pastor Andy Dean's going to be here and taking you through a mini-series and so on. But, uh, but after I get back, we're going to start a series here looking uh, at the, the core values of Reliance Church and what makes us a uniquely special church, uh, what God uniquely is doing here, what the things are that we, that we value and how that informs everything that we do. And, um, and so it's been good for me to put together this, this class for the Bible College because what I cover with the students is all the stuff 
that you go through when you're establishing a church and you say, what are we going to be about? How are we going to operate? And why are we going to operate? Why are we going to do what we do? And, and one of the things that, that, I'm, that, I'm, that I like to talk about when I talk to guys about playing a church is tell them just how incredibly important it is to look at the, the pillars that the, that the Bible establishes that should be a part of a church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read about the first, church, first century church. Uh, and, and, you know, Jesus having ascended into heaven and mobilizing his apostles, they started this first century church. And he, Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we look at what they did. And it tells us there in Acts 2.42 that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. These four things informed what they did. So it's the apostles' doctrine. Hey, we're going to be about studying God's word. Fellowship, the word is koinonia. We're going to dig into that in just a minute, but the importance of being interconnected. And then in the breaking of bread, and what they're talking about here is is, uh, the partaking of communion together and how important it is. Jesus said at the Last Supper that we're to do this in remembrance of him. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about the needfulness that we, we we gather together, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes and partaking of communion together. And so that's the breaking of bread. And then fourthly, prayers, praying individually, praying corporately. Martin Luther said the church goes forward on its knees. And so there are these fundamental things that we do. Well, one of those fundamental things that we do to establish a healthy church is we focus on fellowship. The Greek word that's used in Acts 2.42, it's the word koinonia. And koinonia is a transliteration of a word that means joint participation. And here's the idea. The idea is that believers are to come together in love and in unity and in encouragement of one another. Jesus was asked the question, and some guy came up to me and said, hey, what's the most important commandment in the law? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus says, and the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. And then he adds, on these two commandments hinge all the law and the prophets. In other words, your whole Bible is summed up in two commands, love God and love others. We see that reflected in the 10 commandments. First four, focus on the command to love God. The last six, focus on the command to love one another. And so we intentionally focus on that as a church body. We go, look, we're going to focus on who should we be, what should we do. Well, a lot of our activities are focused on, I want you to know and love God. So there's a lot of vertical kind of ministry that we do in the teaching through God's word and in home fellowships and so on. But I also put an an equal amount of attention getting you connected to one another relationally. So you've got a relational connection with your vertical relationship with God and a horizontal relational connection with one another. And so we, there's a lot of things that we do to, to, to make this happen here in the body of Christ because those relationships are what is going to carry the day. Well, this essence of koinonia, we see it throughout the Bible. Paul said this to the Philippians in Philippians 2 verses 1 and 2. He said, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, in other words, look, if you're connected vertically with God, 
He says, then make my joy complete. Remember, Paul's writing this as a pastor of this church in Philippi. And he's saying, look, if you love God, then make my joy as your pastor complete by being like-minded, having the same love, meaning for one another, uh, and being one in spirit and in purpose. Paul is saying, look, it's critically important if you're going to love one another, or if you're going to love God, that you have to love one another. And Paul said this, or John said the same thing in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he hasn't seen. John says again in 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7, if we say that we have fellowship with him, with God, and yet walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is this idea of koinonia fellowship, so critically important, and we see the example of what koinonia should look like throughout the pages of the New Testament, and it shows up in this phrase, one another. You see God's heart for us, for the body of Christ, and God wanting us to love one another and serve one another and so on. Here's, just consider some of these one another con- uh, statements from God's word in, in the New Testament. The New Testament says that we're to be devoted to one another. The Bible says we're to honor one another, that we're to live in harmony with one another, that we're to accept one another, serve one another, be kind and compassionate to one another. The Bible says we're to teach one another, that we're to encourage one another, that we are to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. The Bible says that we are to offer hospitality to one another, that we are to love one another. That's what this true koinonia fellowship looks like. It looks just like that. And the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ... You and me and all of us together in heaven, in our final home, listen, what it is going to be, it's going to be precisely that. It's going to be us all together, and it's going to be perfect. It's going to be amazing. Now, no doubt you've heard the saying, hey, church would be a great place if it wasn't for all the people, right? But all the people is what makes us the bride of Christ. This is what makes us us. And the beautiful thing about the new Jerusalem, the most beautiful thing about the new Jerusalem is this, no sin. It's perfection, unity together. I had a brother come up to me after the last service. He said, you know what? All the stuff about the new Jerusalem sounds great. I mean, we're going to be looking at some of the specs and just how amazing it is. And us with our earthly you know, minds, we can't comprehend how incredible it is. But we read some pretty amazing stuff, like the asphalt in heaven is solid gold. Like that's pretty amazing stuff, you know. Street is gold, you know. But and he comes up and he goes, all of that's great. Here's the greatest part about heaven to me, that there's no sin up there that we don't have all the, the horrible stuff that goes on. I mean, I can't believe the stuff I'm seeing in the news today. Just recently a news report about some poor man drowning, disabled man, and people mocking him until he dies. And then they know he's dead. He go, oh, he's, he, he's dead now. And mock him to his death, literally. Like, none of that is going to exist in the new heaven. All of that evil and wickedness is going to be gone. 
And so we long for that day. That's what's going to be so amazing. We're going to be there together, and it's going to be perfect. And here's what John says. He says, listen, the new Jerusalem, it's as beautiful as a bride on her wedding day. That's how glorious it is. That's how beautiful it is. So pure and without blemish. Well, not only is this city that we're going to live in beautiful because of the loving unity of its inhabitants, but I want you to notice also it's beautiful because it radiates the glory of God. We'll pick it up in verse 10. Listen to what John says. He says, and he, talking about this angel, carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, Listen, here it is, verse 11, having the glory of God, her light, speaking of the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, there's a lot to unpack here in verse 10 and 11. When, in verse 10, when he says that the holy Jerusalem descended out of heaven from God. Listen, what you need to understand is this is the realization of a thread of faith that's woven throughout all the scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament. Paul said this to the Hebrews in Hebrews 11 verses 9 and 10. He said, when Abraham reached the land that God had promised him, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And then he tells us about Abraham's descendants. He says, and so did Isaac and Jacob who inherited the same promise. But listen, he continues, and this is what I want you to hear. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. Paul said this to the Corinthians about that city. He says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This incredible, beautiful promise is now revealed. That look, we, we, we don't, it's, if this tent that we're in is destroyed, this earthly tent, we've got this beautiful, permanent home. I won't ask for a show of hands because you'll all raise your hand, but we've all had occasion to go camping on, 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 on occasion, a time or two. I used to take my kids up to Halama Beach all the time. We'd go camping up there in northern Santa Barbara County. Awesome. You go on the beach, and we'd take them for walks on the beach, two, three hours down the beach. You never see another soul. Like, try that in Southern California, you, you know. But it's beautiful. It's awesome. But, you know, as great as it is, at a certain point, you're like, I'm ready to go home. And like sand is everywhere, it's in everything, like I'm ready to go home, I'm ready to take a bath or a shower, whatever it is, I'm ready to sleep in my own bed. And see, that's the idea here, the idea of heaven is that ultimately the tent of this world isn't our home, heaven's our home. And it's this magnificent place where the glory of God shines and, and radiates throughout it. That's what John says here. John says that her light, he's speaking of the new Jerusalem, he's speaking of the bride of Christ, speaking of you and me together in our future home. He says that her light was, most, was like a most precious stone, jasper, clear as crystal. Now, the idea here is that the glory of God will shine through the bride, through us, you and me, just like a jasper stone. Now, this is curious 
Because if you consider a jasper stone, you can Google it, you can look at jasper, and what you find is that the stone is opaque. In other words, <laughs> it's not transparent. Like You can't look through it. I can shine light on the backside of it. It will never shine through. And so what does this mean in light of what we're reading here? Well, commentators take a couple of different paths on this. One of the things that's possible they focus in on, on the word crystallizo in the Greek. Look at the end of verse 11 there when uh, he's describing this jasper stone. And what's he say? It's, he says, it's, it, it has the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone. And here's the, the last phrase, clear as crystal. In the Greek, that's the word uh, crystallizo. We get the word crystal from that. That's, and so commentators go, well, Let's hone in on that. It's clear as crystal. You can see through crystal. So it's really probably not a jasper stone that's in view here. What's in view here is a diamond and how the light hits the diamond and it comes through and it, the, all the light is refracted and you see all the different rays and all of its glory and so on. And so some commentators will just focus in on that and they'll say, it's not a jasper stone, it's really a diamond. But... Crystallizo doesn't have to necessarily be translated as clear as crystal. It could be translated as to shine like a crystal. And this is kind of consistent um, with uh, another phrase that we see here in verse 11 where we, we read that the, the, this new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, has the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone. Now that phrase, her light... Uh, in the Greek, her light is the word foster. And if you take the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use this word foster uh, in Genesis 1.16 to describe the light of the moon. Now, you can't see through the moon either, can you? If I stick light on the backside, it ain't coming through the moon. What's it do? It reflects the light. And so, so what people are saying is, no, it's a jasper stone. It's just finely polished to reflect the light of Jesus Christ. So that's probably the best way to translate this is that, you know, this new Jerusalem is like this jasper stone polished to reflect the light of Christ. And you go, well, why are you digging into this? What does it matter? Maybe it's a diamond. Maybe it actually is a jasper stone. What do I care? Well, here's the thing. At the end of the day, it's, it's not really so important which one it is. Here's what, what, is, what is important. The end result is that we, the church, the bride, the new Jerusalem, one and the same, listen, we will be glorified together with Christ. That's the end result here. And by the way, this is a, 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 a great foundational doctrine of our Christian faith, this doctrine of glorification. See, as Christians, we enjoy the fruit of God's grace in a bunch of different ways. We enjoy the fruit of God's grace in the past, in his work on the cross. We enjoy the fruit of God's grace in the present, in his ongoing working in our life. And we will enjoy the fruit of God's grace in the future when we will be glorified together with Jesus Christ. And what I want you to understand is that this is all God's work for us. It's not like we manufacture this in and of ourselves. No, this is Christ's working for us, for our benefit, and us by yielding to him and surrendering to him and, and letting him be Lord of our life, we get to realize the fruit of his grace in all of these different areas. And so 
what happens here is that uh, the past work of Jesus Christ, what do we call that? We call that justification, right? Just as if I'd never sinned. This is when Jesus died on the cross for my sins in my place. Now, Jesus did that work chronologically in my past, in your past, 2,000 years ago, died on the cross for us, right? Romans 3.24 says this, we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Jesus Christ, Okay, well, Jesus also works in the present in our life through sanctifying us, through sanctification. This is what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.10. He said, for we are his workmanship, his work, his work of art, his poem is the literal word, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in. God prepared beforehand these good works that we should walk in them. And so that's the worth of sanctification in the present. Now, again, all God's work for our behalf, but listen, there is a future work of God on our behalf as well. This is the work of glorification. And the Bible says in Romans 8, 17, that we are heirs of God, we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also, here it is, be glorified with him. Paul said this to the Colossians in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our light, appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Christ is the sun, we are the moon. Christ appears in his glory, we reflect that glory. That glory. We have this hope, this future hope of being glorified together with him. And that's the picture that we have here. That's what we're reading about. That the, the, the future is coming, heaven is coming, heaven having been prepared for us by God, and we there are going to reflect the glory of Christ. Now, this gets even better. And you have to hear what I'm about to say, all right? So, remember, Paul talked about Abraham in, in Hebrews. Hey, Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with an eternal foundation, a city designed and built by God. Paul said then to the Corinthians, he said, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, Paul, when he said that to the Corinthians, he was talking about us. He's talking about our bodies. He's talking about the tent, which is your earthly body. Now, that house that we read about here in, Roman, in, in Revelation 21 this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, this house that we read about where Jesus Christ's glory is revealed. Hey, listen, God not only designed it and built it, as Paul told uh, the Hebrews, but he prepared you and me, listen, to be a living part of it. That we're to be a living part of the new Jerusalem reflecting his glory. Let me make it a little more clearer for you. You are a part of the design of the new Jerusalem. So when we see this new Jerusalem descending out of heaven, we go, oh, that's the city I'm going to live in. God says, no, that's the city that I built out of you. Like you're a part of this thing. You're like, how on earth does that work? Here's how it works. Listen, it all comes together in these scriptures, in these verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Listen to what Peter says. Verse 4, coming to him, to who? To Jesus Christ, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. What's Peter talking about? 
Jesus, the cornerstone, that living cornerstone that the builders rejected, right? And he says, verse 5, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. My gosh, here's what it means. It means that as you give your life to Christ today, as you trust God in your life and walk with Him and you do everything you do as worship unto the Lord, everything goes ahead. God said, Jesus said, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. And when you get there, what you find is He's put this whole thing together and He's built heaven in some ways out of your life. In some ways out of your life, the materials that heaven is made of is you hidden in Christ Jesus, built as Jesus and you, living stones being brick by brick of what we read about the new Jerusalem as being. Blows my mind. It's an amazing thing to see. Now hold that thought. Revelation 21, verses 12 through 17. Listen to what John says. Also she... Who's she? The bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem. She had a great and high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates. Names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Don't have time to get into it, but understand this correlates to what we see, the tabernacle in the wilderness and the tribes, three tribes being set on the east and the north and west and the south and, the, and so on. You read about that in the, the Old Testament, but it's reflective of that. Verse 4, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of 12 apostles of the Lamb, and he who talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And uh, he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. In other words, it's a cube. That's important. We'll come back to that. Verse 17. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. And so what, what's taking place here, understand, is the fulfillment of what Jesus promised. In John's gospel, John chapter 14, Jesus said this, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, then I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. This is the fulfillment of that. So I'm going to prepare heaven. And it's going to be amazing. It's going to be beautiful. Now, when Jesus said that, not only was this, he talking about this literal place that we're reading about here in John chapter, or in uh, Revelation 21. But listen, understand, as we hear Jesus' words, I'm going to prepare a place for you and so on. We think that the primary focus of what Jesus is talking about is the place that he's going to prepare. Now, yeah, a a portion of what he's focusing on is the place, and it is important, and it is magnificent, it is wonderful, and we're going to dig into that even more to see how wonderful it is, but we have to understand here that it's ever so much more than the place that he's preparing, it's the fact that he's preparing it for us to be with him. And that's going to be the big idea of what we focus next week on is that what makes heaven heaven is the absence of evil and, listen, the presence of God himself. 
Listen, when Brenda and I got married, I was living in an apartment. She lived at home with her mom and dad, and I married her, and then I moved her out of her house, and I moved her into my home. Now, let me just tell you this. Brenda, from being a little girl, did not dream about the apartment that she would live in one day. It wasn't, it wasn't the big thing about having an apartment. It didn't even matter that that apartment was a mile from the beach. That didn't matter. What mattered, what she dreamt about, was being with her groom, right? What we dream about in heaven, what makes heaven heaven, isn't the place. Yeah, the place is cool. The place is awesome. Comparatively speaking, I moved my wife into an apartment. God is moving us into, an, into a mansion that will blow your mind and exceed your wildest expectations. But that's not what matters. It matters that God's moving us in with himself. And this is the great thing that we're seeing here. And this, by the way, God giving us these dimensions, this is part of why he gives us these dimensions. I told you it was significant that you consider that the length, the width, the height, that they're all the same. In other words, what he's describing is a cube. Why is that significant? Well, because if you read in the Old Testament and you start looking in 1 Kings chapter 6 to discover, hey, what were the dimensions of the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelled, you will find that those dimensions get you an exact cube. In other words, we, what, what we're seeing here by the dimensions is God is describing a place that is a cube just as the Holy, and Hol- Holy of Holies is a cube. And the emphasis in the get is, hey, this is a place where Jesus is abiding himself. And where God the Father abides, we're going to live with him in glory. It's an amazing thing to think about. Look, something else that these dimensions tell us about the new Jerusalem. Listen to this, fascinating details. One of the, one of the, one of the other things we see is that it's going to be massive. 12,000 furlongs, and this is 12,000 furlongs cubed. So what does that mean? Well, one furlong is 660 feet, which translates to 1,500 miles. So the new Jerusalem that the Lord is preparing, the mansion that you're going to live in, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles deep, 1,500 miles high, 1,500 miles. This is absolutely astoundingly huge. That basically translates to about 40 times bigger than England. And that's just on the first floor. There's going to be 600,000 floors. So this is a massive place that God is building for us. And I want you to notice here, listen, the repetition of the number 12. This is actually important. You see 12 represented over and over again in these verses I just read to you. 12 gates, 12 angels, 12 tribes, 12 fountains, 12 apostles. The city's 12,000 furlongs. The wall is 144 cubits, which is 12 times 12. So what's up with that? Well, the number 12 is very symbolic in the Bible. In his book, Number in Scripture, E.W. Bullinger writes this. He says the the number 12 in Scripture represents perfection in government. And so the repetition of the number 12 serves to remind us, look, the new Jerusalem, it's going to be perfectly governed. Just like my buddy Jay said to me after the, service, the last service, he says, look, I don't care what heaven's like. I just care that it's perfect, that God's there. Because that tells me it won't be like here. In fact, he, he said, 
heaven could be earth. I'd be fine with that. As long as the evil was gone and God was there, it would be great. And I absolutely agree with him. But what we hear from all of these 12s, it's that it's a perfect place. It will be perfectly governed. And that gives new, fresh meaning to Isaiah 9, 6, which tells us, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That's why it's called the Holy City, by the way, in verse 2, because God's presence is there. By the way, this gives me an opportunity to work in a question that's asked about heaven. I'm trying to do this throughout the, the series as we're, as we're looking on, on heaven because there's lots of questions about what heaven will be like. And one of the questions, actually somebody asked me this last week, was uh, what is to keep us from sinning in heaven? Like, you know, he- heaven was where Satan lived as one of God's angels and he was created pure and then he sinned. So like what's to keep us from sinning once we get to heaven? It's a good question. And there's a few scriptures that give us sort of a a good idea about this. In Revelation 20 verse 14, it tells us there that Satan and his demons have been banished to hell. So they're not going to be around to do their tempting work. That's that's one way we know that we won't be sinning in the future in heaven, that there won't be sin that enters back into heaven. Revelation 21 verse 3 tells us that God himself is going to be with us, and so that's something else. Revelation 21 verse 1, and in 1 Corinthians 15, we we know that we're going to have a a new heaven, a new earth, and we're going to have new glorified bodies. So there's something else to to hope that, hey, that that will make it pure in the absence of evil. But but even with all of that, you go, well, yeah, but that's still, that, that was kind of the same circumstances under which Satan rebelled against God. So what's to prevent future rebellion? Well, here's what I think is the the, the clincher. And and that's this. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. But yet when we read Revelation 21 verse 4, it tells us there that there will be no more death. And so what does that tell us? There will be no more sin. So, So what's to keep there from being sin? I don't know, but God just says there won't be. So we'll just take that to the bank. Heaven's going to be perfect, and that's where you're going to live. No more sin, no more sickness, no more more evil, no more shyster politicians telling you one thing and doing another, no more somebody being that you love, betraying you and stabbing you in the back. No, No more of any of the stuff of the world that is so devastating. Heaven is going to be an amazing place. Now, next week, I'm kind of hoping I can work it in. It doesn't exactly fit with the text, but I'm trying to work in the answers to the questions like, you know, what age are we going to be in heaven? People have opinions. There's verses to go with it. So that'll be interesting. We'll look at that. Uh, Are our pets in heaven? There's opinions and verses to go with that. So we'll look, try and work those into the message to come. Little teaser for next week. Um, If I can get it in next week, we'll see. But at any rate, I want to close on this. I want to close looking at some of the materials that God's going to use in heaven. And I'll be brief on this point, but verses 18 through 21, really quickly, here's what John says. The construction of its wall, speaking of the new Jerusalem, of, of our home in heaven, the bride of Christ, was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones, 
The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth, yeah, that thing right there, uh, chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, the twelve gates, verse 21, were twelve pearls, each individual gate was one pearl. I can't wait to see the oyster that produced that. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So materials, incredible stuff. I like to watch Fixer Upper, you know, cool show. Uh, and they just take piles of junk and they got good taste and they take these great materials and, and they just, they convert the house, although the gal kind of has, you know, one string on her guitar. It's sort of the same flavor all the time, but I happen to dig the flavor. So it's cool. You watch what they, what she does and you love watching the materials. And I went out to, to dinner this week with a friend of mine, Bob and his wife, Gloria, and Bob flip, flips house, flips houses for a living and the subject of this show came up and he goes, I hate watching that show. He's like, I do that all day long. Like I, if I come home, it's like, I'm, it's like I go back to work again watching all of these materials. And I get it, I understand it. But listen, when it comes to your mansion in glory, when it comes to the new Jerusalem, when it comes to the home that God is preparing for you, listen, Paul said this and I think it fits perfectly. 1 Corinthians 2.9, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that love him. And listen, it's never going to get old. You ain't seen nothing yet. I don't care if you flip houses for a living. Heaven and what God builds it out of and what he's going to do and this new Jerusalem, it will never get old. Now Jesus told a parable and I close on this. Jesus told a parable regarding heaven in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 13. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Here's the parable Jesus told. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and he sold all he had and he bought it. Now, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. This is one parable that can have two different applications, two different meanings, and they're both biblical. Here's the first meaning that this can have. The parable can be taken on the one hand as a story, a story describing a lost sinner who finds Jesus Christ. And that the idea is that you live your life and all of a sudden you come to realize there is this incredible treasure and his name is Jesus Christ. And he died for my sins. And he loves me incredibly. And he promises me that he will take the penalty that, that, that I live under. The wages of sin is death. And what's owed to me is my wages for the life that I've lived. And I deserve to die. I deserve death. I deserve hell. I deserve destruction. And I live in this world and I see that there's got to be something more than the world that I live in. And none of this compares to what Jesus offers me. And so what does this parable mean? This parable says, 
It's rubbish. It's trash. I throw it all away and I cry out and I say, God, I want what you promised me. I want life. I want forgiveness. I want peace. This place that we're reading about, the future, I want that, God. And so I I give away everything I've got so that I can attain that. My dad explained that parable to me this way. He says, look, it's like this. He said, it's like when you've got a bum who lives in a cardboard box and he's lived in this cardboard box his whole life, and it stinks, and it's wet, and it's fallen apart, and it's musty, and it's just a stinking, worthless cardboard box. And so all of a sudden, he wins the lottery, and they send a limo for him, and the limos come to pick him up and to take him to a mansion that he's never even dreamt of, and they say, get into the limo, and the, and the guy says, I won't get in the limo because I can't let go of the box. This is my home. This is everything I've ever known. And they say, are you crazy? (coughs) We have a limousine waiting for you. We have a mansion waiting for you. Let go of that stupid thing. And the person who lets go of that and cries out to God, this is the, the hope that they realize. Well, there's another way that we can define this parable, and it's this way, that the parable describes Jesus Christ that Jesus Christ is the one who gave everything to purchase us at Calvary. Paul, right into the Hebrews, he said this. He said, we're to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him despised the cross, enduring its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, Jesus loves you, and you are that pearl of great price to God. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You're precious to God and he sold everything to redeem you. 